The following sermon was preached at Liberty Baptist Church. We exist to showcase the glory of God by being and making disciples of Jesus. To learn more about us, please visit our website at lbcliberty.org. Hi. Sure do love you guys. It is good to be with you. If you would, open your Bible and turn it to Genesis chapter 4. I heavily debated how to introduce the text we're looking at today. There are some passages of Scripture that are like candy or steak or other good things we like to eat, and there are some passages that are asparagus. This one is asparagus. But the funny thing about asparagus is that it's very good for you. You hear that, kids? The thing about a text like this is that it's a grim story. It's the story of Cain and Abel. If you've heard it, you know it's not for the faint of heart. One of those stories where just when you think it can't get any worse, it does. But at the same time, it points like a laser at hope for this world and at God's mercy towards sinners like us. Sobering passage, but it's also a beautiful one in its way, and it's far beyond my ability to improve. So rather than try to offer some clever introduction, just thinking about this passage, I tried to ask myself, what's the central problem here? What's the central thing we, we need to learn? What's the central thing we need to understand? Against my better judgment, I was uh, watching old episodes of the Stephen Colbert show a couple nights ago. Don't ask me why, I was tired. <laughs> and he had on as a guest a Miss Marie Kondo. Have you heard of this woman? She wrote a book a couple years ago called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, and now she's got a Netflix show. Um, the book isn't so much a how-to on cleaning up your house as it is a philosophy of life that involves letting go of stuff and so on and so forth. It's a path to joy. Mr. Colbert asks her, on his show, why do you think this thing's taken off so much? Why have Americans seized on your philosophy? And her answer, surprisingly insightful, she says through a translator, she doesn't speak English, that not only do human beings have a hard time getting clutter out of their homes, they have a hard time getting clutter out of their hearts. There's a way in which she's not wrong. We, she's identified a real problem in American culture. We are a, a, a greedy, materialistic people. We love stuff. We love to have things our way, in our time. And when stuff gets in the way of us having our way, in our time, we get pretty torqued, don't we? When we look at this text and we take a look at the central character in it, Cain, we see something similar. Cain, his heart is full of self. He wants his way in his timing. And when anything, including God, gets in the way of that, well, just say that it doesn't end well. Now, a brief word before we read the text on, on the genre. This is, this is important. This story is an Old Testament narrative. That means that it's qualitatively a different bird than the New Testament letters to the churches or even the gospel accounts, like the book of Mark that we've been studying through. But a huge portion of our Bible contains these kinds of narrative accounts. God devotes close to one half of the Bible to these historic narratives. Now, 
if I had to guess, I think part of the reason that God uses stories like this so often is because they're an incredibly good mirror. When we hold it up to ourselves and we look at it, we readily see ourselves in them. We identify with these real historic people. We feel what they feel. We recognize the ways in which we're alike. We recognize the ways in which we're different. And most importantly for our purposes, we see the way that these histories weave together into the much larger, true and beautiful story that God is telling us about himself. So we're going to take our time with these 16 verses. There's much here to learn. And much of that learning is meant to be done by putting ourselves in these historic people's shoes. From their vantage point, we're going to gain a perspective on God that was hitherto unknown to us. So let's begin now by reading God's inspired, inerrant, sufficient word together. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. The man, that is Adam, was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. She also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you furious? And why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? Then the Lord said, What have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood. That you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. But Cain answered the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Since you are banishing me today from the face of the earth, and I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth, whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord replied to him, In that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. Then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We need your help now. I need your help now. You know that the words that I have put to this page are tarnished insignificant and ultimately useless apart from the work of your spirit to apply it to my heart and to this congregation's heart. So we pray now that you would do exactly that. Illuminate this text for us and by it, shine the light of your spirit into the dark corners of our souls. 
Cause us to see you as glorious. Cause us to desire you and to desire the joy that you give more than what sin can offer. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. First, let's rewind the tape a little bit and remind ourselves of the immediate context of Genesis 4. That is to say, what's just happened in the biblical story up to this point. Genesis chapter 3 tells the incredibly dark, miserable story of the fall. Let's review it for a moment because it's going to cast an enormous shadow on the proceedings of chapter 4. Now, God, if you recall, has an enemy called Satan. Satan hates God and desires God's place. He'd kill the Almighty if he could, but that's impossible. And if you can't kill an enemy, what do you do to him? You hurt him as badly as you can. That's what Satan tries to do. He hates God desperately, so, and he can't touch him, so he does the next best thing. He identifies the image of God in Adam and Eve and tries to deface it by tempting them to sin. And Adam and Eve disbelieve in the goodness of the merciful, all-knowing, all-powerful Father who made them, gave them one another, the world they were in, and best of all, himself. They decided they would rather be God than have God. We know how this turned out. Adam took one bite of that fruit, and as his jaw crushed it and drained its juice, his soul was itself crushed and drained of life. Everything broke. Everything broke. The very bonds that exist between cells came apart like shattered glass. Strands of DNA warped and unraveled. The nuclear engines of stars stalled and stuttered. Bacteria became pathogens. Stem cells became cancer. And the human heart, built to love God and to be satisfied in God, began to look inward for joy and found a black hole of self. It would be hard to imagine a more hopeless picture than this. God comes. The confrontation of Genesis 3 happens. The curse is uttered. Adam is told that his labor on the ground will now only produce food for him by painful toil. Eve is told that childbearing similarly will also come by painful effort. But God does not leave his wayward children alone. He says to Satan, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, that is the offspring of the woman, will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Did you hear it? The first subtle note in the symphony of the gospel, he will crush the serpent's head. That brings us to Genesis 4. Adam and Eve have moved out of the garden, but as we learn later in verse 16, they haven't gone far. They stay, perhaps, in view of the garden's borders. They remember days gone by. They live with regret and what might have been. They try to trust God's promise to send a rescuer. Then, a miracle happens. Chapter 4, verse 1 tells us, Eve comes to be with child. Time passes, her body changes, the day finally comes, and she learns what the curse means by bearing children with painful effort. But the thing that happens as a result of that painful effort is almost beyond belief. It's a boy! No one had ever seen a baby before. You ever think about that? When this tiny little person comes out, this slimy, screaming, blotchy, purple little mess, 
you can imagine their wonder. God was merciful to them. In spite of their sin, he was blessing them with offspring. And this clearly reminds Eve of God's promise. She names this squirming little man-child Cain, saying, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. Or more literally, she says, I have gotten the man from the Lord. This is the one. Hope springs in Eve's heart. This is the promised seed of the woman, isn't it? Isn't Cain going to be the one who's going to crush the serpent's head? We don't know what happens between the birth of Cain and Abel, but something spoils Eve's hopes. Whereas Cain's name means acquired, Abel's name means vanity. You have to wonder what Adam and Eve thought when it became clear that their sons were imperfect, sinful human beings. You have to wonder if they internalized their sons' sins as their own failures. Every time Cain disobeyed a lovingly given command, every time Abel kicked his brother, I wonder if they looked at that and thought, that's my fault. I did that. Whatever Adam and Eve had discovered about the meaning of bearing children in pain was nothing in comparison to what Cain was about to teach them. Sin, they were learning, is the truth of the monster under the bed. Time passes, the boys grow up to adulthood. Cain takes after his father. He becomes a farmer, according to verse 3. Abel tries his hand at something new. He becomes a shepherd, keeper of goats and sheep. And that brings us to the first act of this story in verses 3 through 7. The brothers bring their sacrifice. Beginning in earnest in verse 3, Cain and Abel bring God a sacrifice on an appointed day. That phrase in verse 3, in the course of time, could just as literally be translated at the end of days, that is, at the end of some appointed period of time, perhaps at the end of the harvest season. Now, this is almost certainly not the first time they've done this. The grown men by this time and the language in the story seems to indicate that this is a part of the normal rhythm of their lives. John Calvin, in his commentary on Genesis, points this out, and he adds, the custom of sacrificing was not rashly devised by them, but divinely delivered to them. That is to say, Cain and Abel are following a command of God. They didn't just wake up one day and go, I've got an idea. Let's bring some stuff to God and see if he likes it. Not that kind of thing. Both men bring an offering that represents a portion of what their work has earned them. Cain brings some of his harvest. Abel brings some of the firstborn of his flock. And then they lay these before the Lord as a gift, an offering. But in spite of the fact that they're clearly doing something they've been doing at least since adulthood, something goes sideways here. Verse 4 tells us that God had regard for Abel and his offering. Okay, good. But he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. There's a problem here. What gives? Why doesn't God accept Cain and his offering? That language is noteworthy, by the way. God accepts Abel, and he accepts Abel's offering. But God does not accept Cain, and he does not accept Cain's offering. Both the man and the offering are either accepted or rejected by God. Some preachers and commentators have tried to claim that the problem with Cain's offering was in its substance. That is, he offered plants and vegetables while Abel offered blood sacrifice. After all, the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin, right? I get the logic, but let's remember, we're people of the book, and the book doesn't say that. The Mosaic law has not yet been given at this point in history, and there's nothing in the text that tells us that this is a sacrifice for sin. As a matter of fact, the text is actually alerting us that there's something much more serious at play here than the mere stuff that Cain is offering. God 
doesn't just disregard Cain's offering, he disregards Cain himself. Other commentators have said that the problem is that Abel offered the firstborn of his flock while Cain just offered some of his harvest. Well, I think that has a little more merit. It still only describes part of the problem. Scripture interprets Scripture, as we so often say. And in this case, we have to turn to the book of Hebrews to get a fuller answer. In Hebrews 11, verse 4, we're told, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. And there it is. Cain made his offering to God, not as the overflow of a heart grateful to and joyful in God, but out of mere religious observance. He was keeping the letter of the command without inwardly observing the spirit of it, to give a gift in gratitude for God's love, his provision, his ongoing favor. He wanted a relationship with God, yes, but Cain wanted it on his terms, with his timing, in his way. Now, if you asked Cain, Cain, do you love God? He'd probably answer with a very hearty yes. And from the outside, there probably wouldn't be anything to contradict this. Because here he is, he's making his sacrifice, and later when God speaks to Cain, it's clear that Cain's not unaccustomed to conversing with the Almighty. In verse 14 of this chapter, Cain bewails the thought of being driven from God's presence. Cain likes God. Cain finds the idea of God agreeable. As a matter of fact, Cain is actually vested with a much better theology than any of us in the sense that his theology is directly experiential. He has immediate experience with God, but quite a lot of it by all appearances. By contrast, we're not told much about Abel, but Hebrews 11.4 gives us an insight into the man's attitude toward God. Abel makes his offering from a thankful heart of worship toward God. He makes his offering by faith. His heart of worship is not perfect by any means. Abel undoubtedly struggled with pride and selfishness and idolatries of his own, but Abel was trusting in God's promise to send a rescuer. And his experience with God had caused him to trust the Lord even more and to submit his life to him. Abel was believing God's words and God's works. In other words, Abel was living by faith. Cain was living by his good deeds. Now, before we dismiss that out of hand, say, oh, yeah, I, I believe in grace alone through faith alone, sure. Slow down a minute. Yeah, we say that we believe this, but do we actually live this way? After all, Cain was also saying the right things with his sacrifice. The rub was that Cain, at the bottom, was a Pharisee. He felt that he was owed acceptance by God because of his observance. Cain wasn't struggling with his assurance of salvation. He was quite confident that he had his theology and practice on lock. Take a warning here. Good theology and even good outward behavior can conceal a heart full of pride as it did in Cain. And like it did in Cain, it can even deceive the prideful one into thinking that he's got this God thing figured. As we've been studying through Mark, we've been introduced to the Pharisees. These guys were in much the same position as Cain. They had pretty good theology. Their practice was mostly straight. And at the bottom, they believed they dictated the terms of their relationship with God. They thought God owed it to them. But in Matthew 23, Jesus compares the Pharisees to Cain and his murder of Abel because of their pride before God. 
Now, Cain's pride and works righteousness was only revealed when it was poked. What pokes your pride? Why? There's some ways to suss it out. If you're married, what do you think your spouse would say in the honesty of their heart if, they, if you asked them what bothers your pride the most? What would they say about your teachability before God? What about your coworkers? Would they describe you as a genuinely humble person or are you quick to jump to your own defense? If you're an employer or if you have people who report to you in some work capacity, what would they say about you? How would they describe the ways that you wield your authority? Are you easily threatened? Do you puff yourself up to protect your image? What about when someone gets some kudos that you feel you deserve? Or when someone gets recognition for something that you think's in your wheelhouse? These are the kinds of places where pride often can't help but reveal itself. But we need to acknowledge that pride is deceitful. It can hide in all kinds of places, even in our religious observances, even in the way that we speak about God. But it's so dangerous because pride can conceal from us the difference between faith alone in Christ alone and faith alone in works alone. Now, it seems that up to this point, Cain's been able to hide this difference from those around him for a time. But this event causes him to reveal what's truly in his heart. Verse 5 tells us that Cain is furious to find that God has not accepted his offering, has not regarded him. Now, this on its own is quite a revelation, isn't it? Rather than a response of grief, a repentant approach to God, or even just a pause to genuinely consider why this might be the case, Cain's shocked and angry. He's done everything right, hasn't he? He brought the sacrifice, didn't he? Where does God get off not holding up his end of the bargain? What's so special about Abel that God would accept him? Cain can't keep this from his face. He's despondent. Written there for everyone to see. So God approaches Cain to speak with him. Now, God sees all this. He knows the attitude that's already in Cain's heart. He already knows that Cain's got this furious jealousy, this dangerous hatred lurking there. So if you or I were in God's position... How would we approach the intractable Cain? And how I'd do it. Real big. There'd be lightning and thunder and fire and earthquakes and fury to match my wrath. I'd put the fear of God in that twerp. That's not how God handles it. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, we're told that it's God's kind forbearance of sin that leads us to repentance. In keeping with that, God approaches Cain gently paternally. It's not to say that he isn't direct with Cain, but he begins by asking Cain a question. Why, Cain? Why are you angry? The implied answer here is that Cain is angry because his pride has been aggravated, not only by God's rejection of him, but by righteous Abel's conduct by comparison. Then, after questioning him, God encourages him. He says, if you do what is right, that is to say, if you, if you imitate Abel here, if you do as Abel did, won't you be accepted? In other words, God's telling him, Cain, I'm not withholding myself from you. I'm right here. Repent. Reject sin. Return to me in trust and humility. Let's be joyful together, you and I. This is really amazing. I think of how often I, too often, approach my children when they've disobeyed me or they're threatening to. 
What's the matter with you? Didn't I tell you not to do that? Cut it out. When I snap at them, I do so because my authority is threatened or my pride is offended that they would dare to defy me. Maybe you're the same way. Or if you're not a parent, maybe you can be similarly impatient with fellow believers. God's not doing that here with this openly rebellious sinner. Even though he's the only being in the universe who would have the right to do so, instead, he mercifully, gently cajoles him. He doesn't sugarcoat anything that he says to Cain. There's nothing wishy-washy about this. But he holds out a hand of reconciliation and mercy instead of a closed, threatening fist. But he doesn't stop there. God also offers a fatherly warning. So you see that pattern. He questions him. He encourages him. He offers a warning. He says to him, If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. More literally, it wants to have you, but you must rule over it. What an image. Sin crouched at the door of Cain's heart like a wolf outside a rabbit's warren. The implication is clear. Cain, if you open that door and let that wolf in, it will eat you. Pause for a moment. What sin is crouching at your door? Or is it already worse than that? Is it sitting in your kitchen while you sleep at night? Is it curled up at your desk waiting for you to open your computer? It will eat you. Heed God's warning to Cain. Treat it like the vicious predator that it is and run. Run to Jesus. He waits to receive your repentance and share his joy with you. Whatever lies sin has been telling you, whispering in your ear in the watches of the night, don't listen. It does not love you, and it cannot give you happiness. Cain, unfortunately, rejects God's merciful warning. Not only does he open the door to his sin, he actually embraces it, both arms. And inevitably, when God's mercy is rejected, death is the result. When God's mercy is rejected, death is always the result. That brings us to the second act of this story in verse 8. Very briefly, murder. The text gives us a chillingly brief account of what happens next. Two short sentences. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. Innocent enough. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Consider something for a moment. Do you realize that this had never happened before? No human being had ever killed another. Quite possibly, no human being had ever even conceived of such a thing. Imagine the sulfurous, satanic imagination that had to be behind this action. Even the text gives a strong hint at the premeditated nature of the killing. Cain lures his brother out into the wild, and then the murder itself comes in two stages. First, Cain attacks his brother, and then he kills him. In other words, there's a struggle through which Cain has to persist. When he attacks his brother, maybe with a stone or just with his bare hands, Abel fights back. Cain's given ample opportunity to, to rethink his actions as he sees the fear and surprise on his brother's face. That doesn't stop him. 
Don't make the mistake of thinking here that Cain suddenly snaps and just ends his brother with a single unfortunate stroke. No, Cain plots, he plans, he acts, and thereby he commits not only the first murder, but the first fratricide. He rejected God's mercy, death followed. Soak for a moment in the horror of this. Don't look away. This is sin, my friends. This is what it does. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Do you fear sin? Do you fear your sin? You should. Not only will it kill you, it might very well kill people you love. Question then, why did Cain kill Abel? Was it because he hated Abel? It was at least a part of it. First John tells us that Cain killed Abel partially out of sheer frustrated jealousy. Abel's deeds were righteous, Cain's were evil, and Cain just couldn't stand it. But it goes deeper even than that. Cain's murder of Abel was ultimately motivated by a hatred for God. Once Cain realized that God did not exist to just rubber stamp Cain's life, when he realized that God was not just about making Cain feel good about himself, whatever goodwill he had toward God got turned inside out into a vicious, snarling hatred. Do you remember how I said that Satan realizing that he couldn't hurt God, decided to try to deface God's image in Adam and Eve, Cain does exactly the same thing. Unable to touch the creator of the universe, Cain turned towards his brother, who bears that creator's image and likeness, and hating that image, he takes that image bearer and he strikes him again and again and again until that image is obliterated and that image bearer stops moving. He martyred Abel in a brazen act of hatred for and defiance toward God. Unable to justify himself, when the Creator pointed out his deficiencies, he tried to rid himself of his brother. The very sight of Abel undoubtedly filled him with self-loathing and angry, ugly thoughts of God. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 5 that murder begins in the heart with hatred. Hatred for others. Hatred for God. Now, perhaps you don't hate God. Perhaps you don't even hate any human being, but Jude verse 11 warns us against the way of Cain, a lifestyle characterized by rejection of God's kind authority, rejection of his mercy, his law. That verse in Jude parallels Cain's attitude and heart with the rebellion of Korah and the sin of Balaam. Now, you don't have to be super familiar with all three of those stories to know that in all three cases, the central parties had all heard directly from God. And all reacted to God's good command with open revolt. And do you know what else all three of these rebellions had in common? They're all performed by people who presumably had much reason to love God and to follow him. So what happened? Why did Balaam, the prophet of the Lord, ultimately reject him and rebel against him and try to curse his people? Why did Korah, a Levite, ultimately reject God's ways and try to usurp his law? Why did Cain, who knew God so closely and talked with him and lived even in sight of the Garden of Eden, ultimately reject God? Because down at the bottom, they all wanted the benefits of knowing God 
without submitting to his ways. And funnily enough, God's got really good personal boundaries. He doesn't let people just approach him any old which way. He's holy. If you will have him, you will have him on his terms or not at all. And when Cain and Korah and Balaam came up against this, their apparent desire for him was translated into hatred of him. And in all three cases, their rejection of God's mercy was followed by death. That brings us to the third act, verses 9 through 14. Let's ask ourselves an important question. So, the murder has happened. If you are God, how do you react now? The very blood of your beloved creation is soaking into the dirt for the very first time. You were as gracious and patient with the murderer beforehand as anyone could possibly imagine, so how do you approach him? Surely now's the time for wrath, right? It's going to be in this moment that God's going to come down in fire and fury. Take a look at verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where's your brother, Abel? Be amazed for a moment at this tender display of God's mercy. He holds out one more opportunity to Cain. All that needs to be said now is open confession. The Almighty is poised to give Cain mercy once again. All Cain's got to do is trust in God's goodness, recognize the ugliness of his sin, and surrender. He doesn't. He gives a response to God that's so mouthy that I hesitate to even repeat it aloud. He says, I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? This is genuinely incredible. Like we said before, Cain's got a really good theology. He knows that God already knows. At this point, there's no reason for him to not just say, you know what, I killed the miserable wretch, and good riddance. He's trying to throw up roadblocks to God's grace at every single turn. He doesn't want God's kindness. He doesn't want God's mercy. Cain wants his own way, and he's determined to have it at any cost. So, God pronounces judgment on him. And notice the change in tone here. Where before God offered Cain patience and encouragement, he now speaks in fearful words of justice. Then the Lord said to him, What have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed. Alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Notice how thoroughly Cain is condemned. Not only does God's watchful eye witness and testify against Cain, Abel's own blood, wrongfully wrenched from its innocent owner, shouts to God for justice. And the poor offended earth even, accustomed to drinking in the dew of heaven and not the blood of image bearers, adds its voice to the demand for punishment. Now see another aspect of God's mercy. He works justice for the victim. Met with Cain's resistance, God delivers a righteous sentence. If Adam was cursed to work the ground with hard toil, Cain's work with the soil will now be fruitless. Next, Cain is cut off from his family. He's exiled from his parents' abode and driven out. And in the same way that Adam and Eve were driven from the garden in Genesis 3, where they lived with their heavenly father, Cain must leave his parents' company and go out from them. And lastly, and most horribly, he's cut off from God's presence. In the same way that Adam and Eve were forced to experience a necessary loss of intimacy with God because of their sin, Cain is now cut off from conversationally interacting with God. He will never again know the warmth of God's presence. 
or bring a sacrifice to his altar. But even now, Cain offers no remorse, no repentance, not even an acknowledgement of his wrong. Listen to his self-pitying reaction. But Cain answered the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Since you are banishing me today from the face of the earth, and I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth, whoever finds me will kill me. If you aren't shuddering by now, this would be a good time to start. What an absolute terror to think that the sinful nature at work in Cain here lies in every human heart. Cain's reaction shows no awareness of his sinful condition. He doesn't say, yeah, you know what, I'm not sorry about it, but you're right. I did do this, and it was wrong. He doesn't say, please forgive me. All he can say is, you're not being fair, God. But his reaction does contain a self-pitying fear for his fate. He realizes that the rest of humanity, as it rises from its small beginnings, are going to regard his actions as deplorable, and he fears their vengeance. And he laments the loss, not of his relationship to God, but of his access to God and to the things of God. Now, if you're here and you have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, if the Holy Spirit has given you a new nature and power to fight the old nature at work within you, take a moment. Just rejoice and worship in relief because that could have been you. That could have been you. Don't spurn the gracious mercy of God by giving clemency to any sin that remains in you. Don't declare a truce with it. Like Cain, your sin would see you utterly ruined, driven far from God and man. It would love to get you alone in the wild where it can trammel you and bleed you until you're finally consigned to the fires of hell. Verses 15 and 16 give us the resolution of this terrible story. God's mercy towards sinners is even in that moment still not extinguished. In response to Cain's fearful cry, God promises that even separated from God's presence, God's protection will still go with Cain. Maybe that's crazy. Think about what Cain just said to God. Think about the attitude with which he said it. It would be at this moment that if I'm God, I'm like, bloop, see ya. No. That's not how God reacts to him. In verse 15, he says, In that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. Wow. Now, there's been a lot of speculation about what this mark could have been. The Bible doesn't tell us. Whatever it was, its purpose was to make apparent to anyone who saw him that Cain was under God's protection. But to my deep regret, it's necessary to pause and acknowledge a horrific miscarriage of interpretation surrounding this verse. Unfortunately, many past theologians and pastors, including and unfortunately even especially in our own Southern Baptist Convention, have interpreted the mark of Cain to be black skin. They used this interpretation to justify the practice of American chattel slavery and thus act in a Cain-like way toward innocent image bearers uniting the gospel of Christ in their preaching to the revolting slave trade. And to this day, the legacy of that wicked misuse of God's word has encouraged many to continue acting in the way of Cain, pointing racial hatred at human beings marked by the image of God 
And let's not make the mistake of thinking that racism is dead and gone in America just because it's been hidden behind closed doors and polite smiles for a few years. Just last week, a newspaper in Alabama openly called for the restoration of the Ku Klux Klan in America. The way of Cain is wide, my friends, and it is well-paved and has many travelers. And unfortunately, we as believers have to acknowledge and confess that we have done much of the work to cut the trail of that road on that issue. If you're here and you harbor racial hatred in your heart, be done imitating Cain. Repent. Turn to Jesus. You can forgive. If you're here and you've been the victim of racial hatred, know that God's justice is not sleeping. Even as God worked justice for innocent Abel, he will do justice against all sin in the end. Regardless, God intends this mark, whatever it is, for Cain's protection, even in the face of Cain's self-centered whining. Notice what Cain fears. Having murdered his brother, he's now worried that someone's going to do the same to him. And interestingly enough, God seems to agree with him. Cain violated the image of God by murdering his brother, and it seems that God intends to prevent another image bearer from suffering the same fate. In this way, God not only reaffirms the image of God in Cain, he affirms the image of God in all human beings, as well as his sole right to be the one to give justice in the end. Verse 16 gives us the end of the action. This verse has frankly crippled me. Cain, already exiled from Eden, now goes out even further from the garden into a land the Bible names as Nod. That word literally means wandering. Cain becomes exactly what both he and God prophesied, a restless wanderer on the earth. No home, no people. And as far as Scripture is concerned, he remained that way, separated from God, marked by the blood of his brother, stubbornly insistent on his own way, straight to the end. Now let's pause and take a breath. For the last 30 minutes or so, we've been staring deep into the black hole that is the human heart. What in the world, you might rightly ask, does this have to do with us, other than a historical account that stands as a terrible warning against rebellion against God? Earlier, we read a part of Hebrews chapter 12, and in verse 24, we're told that in Jesus, we find, quote, the mediator of a new covenant and the sprinkled blood which says better things than the blood of Abel. When that was read, did you wonder what that meant? What's Abel's blood saying? And how does Jesus' blood say better things? When God pronounces punishment on Cain, he says to him, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Abel's blood is demanding to be noticed, to be avenged. It insists on justice for the one who shed it, and rightfully so. Abel was martyred ultimately for his trust in God and his righteous works that flowed out of that trust. It's written in the human heart that murder is a terrible crime that must be avenged. But murder is not the only crime that deserves punishment. All rebellion against God, all those who walk in the way of Cain, will rightfully stand under God's justice on the last day. All murder, sexual immorality, lying, pride, racism, gossip, idolatry, backbiting, licentiousness, and all the like will stand in the dock and point at the sinners who participated in such things. And if we're being honest with ourselves, we have to acknowledge that we have participated in these things in one way or another. We have walked in the way of Cain. 
by stubbornly following our own way in the face of God's mercy. And this is no more evident than in the crucifixion of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Like righteous Abel, Jesus was murdered at least in part because of his good deeds. He was murdered at least in part because of their jealous hatred. Those who thought themselves righteous, but like Cain, wanted God on their terms. Jesus' sacrifice anticipated, or I'm sorry, rather than put that the other way around, he, Jesus was the very sacrifice that Abel's sacrifice anticipated. Jesus was a once-for-all offering of blood to cover the stain of sin. And we, like Cain, have blood on our hands. But the good news tells us that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Where Abel's blood continually cries out for punishment from God, Jesus' blood says to the Father, Forgive, I have paid it all. Where Abel's blood was mercilessly taken from him, Jesus willingly gave his in order to forgive the very ones who nailed him to the tree. When Abel's blood was spilled, it condemned Cain to exile, to wandering far from God. When Jesus' blood was spilled, it was the atonement for all the ruined sons of Cain and the price for their returning from all their wanderings. Mercy, my friends, God's mercy from beginning to end. If you have not yet repented of following the way of Cain, please stop, be done wandering alone in the wilderness. Jesus wants you to share in his joy and rid you of the misery and judgment of your sin. He loves you, son of Cain. He loves you, daughter of Cain. And he would have you be his sibling and have God as your father, never to be separated again. Come home to the blood of Christ. If you're walking in the way of Cain this morning by sitting in judgment of your brothers or sisters in Christ, repent. Don't have their blood on your hands by sitting in pride over them in your heart. Stop wandering. Come home. If you're walking in the way of Cain this morning by supporting abortion and human trafficking through the use of pornography, repent. Don't have the blood of innocent women and children on your hands just to satisfy your lust. Stop wandering. Come home to the blood of Christ. If you're walking in the way of Cain today by harboring pride in your heart, pride in your accomplishments, your knowledge, even your spiritual maturity, repent. Don't have your own blood on your hands by failing to dethrone yourself and worship God as God. Stop wandering. Come home to the blood of Christ. If you're walking in the way of Cain this morning by worshiping the idol of others' approval, repent. Don't have your blood on your hands by striving to serve man and not God. You can give it up. You can stop wandering and come home to Christ. If you're walking in the way of Cain today in that you have never trusted Jesus to save you from sin and hell, repent. He wants you. He loves you. Stop walking in the way of Cain. Come out of the land of Nod. Come home to the blood of Christ. Let's pray together. Jesus, your mercy overshadows all these grim proceedings. Thank you that the shadow of your cross falls even on 
sons and daughters of Cain out in the wilderness, pursuing our own way, lost, alone. Pray now that your spirit would work in us. Comfort the afflicted. Afflict the comforted. Cause us all to love you and trust you more. To reject the way of Cain, the deceit of sin. It's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. I'm going to take a moment now to silently reflect together on the word that we've heard, and then we'll continue to worship together in song.